Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, our guest is renowned biochemist Jennifer Doudna, class of 85. She's the Ling Ka-Shing Chancellor's Chair and a professor in the Departments of Chemistry and of Molecular and Cell Biology at the University of California, Berkeley, as well as an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. But she's best known for her discovery, along with French microbiologist Emmanuel Charpentier, of the now famous molecular tool known as CRISPR-Cas9. Welcome, Jennifer. So it's good to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, with us, sort of, here in, in <laughs> cyberspace. Virtual, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how are you and, and your family doing in these crazy times? Well, thanks for asking, Mark. It's been a very interesting few weeks, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been very deeply involved in getting a clinical testing lab running at the University of California, Berkeley. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I've got a son who is uh, graduating high school, and so you can imagine that for him and his friends, very disappointing not to have commencement happening. But uh, we have a we have a virtual commencement tomorrow night, and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> That's exciting and safe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jennifer, let's start like they say at the beginning. Um, you grew up in Hawaii. Um, what was that like, and what were you like as, as a child? Yeah, so um, I, I uh, Patty, I grew up on the Big Island in in a town called Hilo. It's not the kind of place that you probably imagine when you think about Hawaii. It's very rainy, um, not a tourist destination by any means. It's kind of a kind of a working class uh, town. My father was on the on the faculty at the University of Hawaii at, at Hilo and a literature professor. So I grew up in a, you know, kind of an intellectual family. Um, but but I, I really found myself captivated by the natural environment in Hawaii. And I, you know, I was always a kid who wanted to understand, you know, how things worked and loved math in school. And, uh, you know, I was kind of a bit of an outsider. I, you know, certainly culturally um, in the 70s when I was growing up there, it was kind of definitely not cool to be uh, blonde, blue-eyed, howly, uh, with a big nose and hairy arms and, you know, all of that. So I definitely <laughs> took my share of, um, you know, teasing and, and, uh, kids saying, you know, what's wrong with you? Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think like many folks that have faced that, I think it, it also, you know, was an opportunity to kind of understand what, it, what it's like to be different and to, uh, you know, try to, try to figure out how to fit in. In different ways. So for me, it was all about playing soccer. So I, you know, I became a, a, a halfback on our, our first goal soccer team in high school. Um, and I lettered, I got two varsity letters in soccer, which I'm probably, that's one of the things I'm proudest of in high school. It's kind of, kind of interesting. And because of that, it kind of connected me to a whole different community of kids that, uh, you know, were, you know, people that I might not have known otherwise. So um, and I, I, this is an example of, you know, I think how, how I tried to find ways to, to be cool, even though I kind of wasn't cool at all. <laughs> um, you said that, uh, um, you 
were fascinated by the world around you and the the and you're good at math. Your, your mom and dad were both in the humanities. So how how do you think you ended up in the sciences? Was there is there some some can you trace that back to some some point in your life, some time or some event? I'm a misfit, you know, I'm a black sheep. What can I say? <laughs> and, you know, Good answer. Father's big disappointment was, yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't become a, a you know, a literature uh, guru of some kind. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, it's one of those funny things. It's just, uh, just who I am. It's, it's kind of always been part of, part of my, part of my personality. Um, I remember in, I probably was probably a junior in high school uh, when the um, energy crisis was happening in the in the 70s and um you know i got i got very interested in the whole question of you know how could you how could you come up with ways to to not have to use fossil fuels and you know started you know researching that and i can remember sitting in the library you know looking up you know uh you know articles about geothermal energy and that sort of thing so you know i was just just kind of always fascinated by um by by science and and kind of technology you know solutions to, to problems that we face in the world and never imagined that you know i would become a scientist until i think i was uh maybe 10th grade in in, in high school when we had a we had a um, lecture series by people around the state of Hawaii who were professional scientists, and uh, we had you know a number of really fascinating people came through: marine biologists, uh, volcanologists, uh, you know, astronomers. But the one that really caught my attention was somebody who was working on cancer biology, and you know, her her work was all about trying to figure out you know why do why do normal cells become cancerous. And she talked about how she was a biochemist, you know, somebody who, you know, studied molecules and tried to figure out how they work. And I, for me, you know, when I saw that talk, I still remember it. It just, you know, a light bulb went off and I thought, that is exactly what I want to do. That is sounds so interesting and so fun. I can't, can't imagine anything more interesting than that. And that really kind of, you know, that's why I actually went to Pomona, right? I, I you know, I, I started thinking I want to be a biochemist. And in those days, this was in the, you know, late 70s, I guess, early 80s, right around 1980, um, you know, there were not very many undergraduate uh, colleges that had a focus or even a class in, in biochemistry, much less a major. And Pomona did, you know, and so that was something that really attracted me to the campus. So you mentioned that biochemistry was what brought you to mainland and to Pomona. Um, can you tell us some uh, about some of the mentors you had while you were at Pomona? Uh, yeah, I had I had amazing mentors. I, you know, just from the very beginning, there were incredible scientists who were welcoming uh, for people like me that knew nothing, uh, you know, and wel welcoming into their laboratories and uh, opening up opportunities. Uh, gosh, let's see. There was Sandy Grabner, uh, a wonderful professor of mathematics, and uh, had him for a couple of different calculus classes. Loved, loved talking to him, used to go to his office hours and, you know, he's always very nice and, you know, great at explaining things and, uh, you know, trying to make it real, you know, because sometimes math can be a little esoteric, right? Um, so he was awesome at that. Uh, Fred Greenman, of course, in, in chemistry was incredible. And then, and then, you know, Sharon Panasenko, I mean, I have to really give her a shout out. I mean, she, 
you know, left Pomona a number of years ago now, but, you know, she was, when I was there, she had just been hired as a professor in chemistry whose focus was biochemistry. And, um, you know, she just gave us the best background in that topic I could possibly imagine. Her course was very hard and, uh, you know, she expected a lot and, and it was great. You know, she was very demanding. And then I remember one day, you know, she, I think it was like in the second semester of that, that when I was taking her, her biochemistry class, um, you know, she said that she had two openings for, for uh, students to work in her laboratory over the summer and that we could apply to, to do it. And I thought, well, you know, I, I'll never get accepted, but I guess I'll apply anyway. And, you know, it sounds like kind of a bad attitude, but I, you know, I was, I didn't assume I was the best or, you know, even that great. I don't know. I just didn't really think of myself as being all that talented, but I just really wanted to do it, you know? And so I applied to, to, uh, to her lab and amazingly she, she accepted me, you know, and, and, uh, and so I got this, this uh, opportunity to work with her over the summer and, and really work with her. You know, it wasn't just, she threw something over the fence and said, come back in 10 weeks when you're done. It was every day going in and planning out experiments with her. And it was just the most amazing thing. You know, it was just incredible. And uh, what a, what an amazing opportunity. And then I guess the, the only other uh, person I would like to, to give a special uh, shout out to is R. Nelson Smith. So R. Nelson Smith, legendary at Pomona, right? Um, you know, he's been gone for a while, unfortunately. But he, when I was there, he was teaching general chemistry. And, uh, you know, he was just, I mean, just in, incomparable. He was fabulous. And, uh, you know, just incredible uh, very demanding. You know, it was a tough class. I didn't do very well in that class, you know, and I questioned my ability to be a, be a chemist or a biochemist, but, but he, he, uh, you know, he asked a lot and he, he really wanted the students to rise to the, to the challenge. And we did, you know, we did our best. Right. And, and it was amazing to have somebody like that, that, you know, really kind of, for me was the, the door into it's like opening a door into a whole new world of, of chemistry that I had no idea existed and it was hard but I you know in the end I, I embraced it I loved it. Well now after leaving Pomona you've you had you had the either very good luck or very good judgment in picking your mentors after that too right I mean you have two who um one at Harvard and one later during your postdoc who went on to win, the, win Nobel Prizes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about working with them? Right. So, I, yeah, after Pomona, I, um, you know, I applied to, when I was in my senior year at Pomona, I had, you know, I had just, I had just finished the summer of working in Sharon Panasenko's lab, and I was doing a little bit more work with her during my senior year. And, um you know, I just, I loved it so much. I loved the lab work. And I thought, I want to keep, I want to do more of that. Well, how can I do more? You know, and, and so I decided, well, I'll go to grad school. And so I ended up uh, getting into the program at, at Harvard Medical School. And when I got there, I, uh, you know, it's a big place. And, um, you know, there's tons and tons of, of research going on. And I, I was a little bit lost. I didn't quite know, you know, how to, how to find um, the right lab for me so to speak. And I, I got lucky because, and it really is luck, you know, because I, I just, you know, I was doing these laboratory rotations and I worked with two, in two great labs. I loved, loved both of my first 
uh, rotations. These are sort of, you know, two to three months uh, time periods of working in a lab just to get a flavor for it and decide if that's the lab where you want to do your PhD thesis research. And then I had to do a third rotation. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, okay, where, where do I go next? And I happened to hear about this uh, young guy whose name was Jack Shostak, who was, you know, in his early 30s, but already a full professor tenured at Harvard and widely rumored to be a bit of an eccentric genius, you know. And uh, um, when I when I went to talk to him, you know, he was just so passionate about science and he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a yeast uh, geneticist by training, but I'm moving in a very new direction with my work. I'm interested in the origin of life. And I thought, wow, you probably can't get a much bigger question than that. And, uh, and, but, but, you know, his genius was that he could take a huge question like that that sounds intractable by experimental science, and he could break it down into experiments that we could actually do in the lab. And I could just tell that he was, uh, you know, he was sort of the most creative person I'd ever met. And um, I found that very, very attractive. So I joined his lab and uh, he turned out to be an incredible mentor. And through his mentorship and, you know, opportunities that I had while I was a student there, I had the chance to meet uh, the person that became my postdoctoral mentor, Tom Check. And, um, by that point, Tom Cech had actually already received his Nobel Prize, so he was, you know, fairly, uh, again, very, very accomplished, um, incredible scientist. And uh, I, you know, I had the opportunity to, to work with him at, during my 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 postdoctoral training, which basically is, you know, in our field, it's training that you do after your PhD to gain additional experience in the lab, but also to, you know, learn a little bit more about what it's like to run a lab, and how you, how do you manage people, how you pick the right project and things like that. And, uh, you know, and, and again, it was, you know, he's a very different style than my graduate advisor, but equally brilliant and, um, you know, very gifted at, uh, picking the right project clearly. Right. And, you know, teaching us how to, how to figure out what, you know, what, what really, constitutes good science how do you how do you do really rigorous really interesting work and then how do you communicate it to people because that's an important part of the puzzle as well you mentioned that at Pomona you had at the beginning had some doubts of whether or not you would get that lab position as a student uh, by this point you have a, you were working with a Nobel Prize winner um, did, how did that evolution take place what did you still how, how did you feel about that uh, how did I feel about joining the lab, his lab? Working, working with, with somebody so, so renowned, were, did, how did your confidence evolve? You were doing uh, great work already. Um, how did your confidence uh, evolve from them? That's a, that's a really interesting question, Patty. I, that's something I think about a lot because I think it's very important for a lot of students, you know, to understand, you know, I think for students that, you know, they might look at somebody like me and, you know, it might, my past might seem unusual or, you know, just hard to, hard to imagine. Like, how did she get from, you know, this little town in Hawaii to where she is now? And, uh, and I think, I think, you know, for me, one of the key things that my mentors offered to me was experiences that helped to build my confidence in myself. 
right? Because I think, you know, for me, when I started out, I mean, let's just, you know, I came from a unlikely background, honestly, right? I mean, I was in a small town and I, ha- I was lucky that I had a really supportive family, but, you know, nobody in my family was a scientist. I certainly didn't know any women scientists when I was growing up, none. I didn't know of any. I didn't even know if it was a career that a woman could do reasonably. You know, I had no idea. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I wasn't always the top of my class. You know, I wasn't always the best in every class. And so, you know, I didn't really have a sense of myself as special in any way. I felt like I'm, you know, I'm one of the pack. I'm trying to do my thing like everybody else. And, and so when I got to grad school, I, you know, I, I have to tell one little story because it, 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 really, it really illustrates for me um, kind of, a, you know, it was a bit of a turning point in a way, you know, and it, it was when I was, I was, uh, I had joined Jack Shostak's lab, this, you know, this, uh, at the time, young, uh, brilliant man who went on to win a Nobel later. And, um, you know, I was doing this rotation project in his lab and I had told him that, yeah, I want to work on this origin of life project. And so I was the, at the time, the only person in the lab that was working on this kind of weird, you know, kind of crazy but really super cool, really fun, interesting project. And, um, and so I was doing a lot of reading and I was, you know, trying to, trying to get up to speed on the work that we were doing and planning out experiments. And, you know, one day I was sitting at my desk in the lab and my advisor came over to me and he said, uh, Hey, Jennifer, I, you know, I've been thinking about an experiment that I think might be really, really interesting to do, but, I'm not sure. And I want to bounce it off you and see what you think. I mean, can you imagine, right? (laughs) This guy who's like this genius and like the youngest tenured professor at Harvard wants to know what I think about his idea. (laughs) But I mean, I think that just, you know, was kind of this really cool moment when I realized he cares what I think. He really cares. Like, I mean, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't making it up or faking it or anything. He really, mm-hmm. he really wanted to just sit down and have a conversation about, you know, what did I think about this idea? And, mm-hmm. um, and, and this just, you know, for me was like, wow, you know, uh, if he thinks that my brain is worthy, then, you know, maybe, maybe it's a little bit worthy. Um, <laughs> and I think that's something that I now, you know, as a mentor, I really try to do that with my students. And I realized that, and this is the other thing that's very, very interesting is I think that creative ideas come from everywhere. And I think that, you know, the most successful research teams, teams of any kind, really, but certainly in my own, you know, running a research lab, I think the most successful labs are labs that enable a wide diversity of ideas and they enable everyone in the lab from the most, you know, experienced person to the least, right? To feel empowered and enabled to contribute. And that's something that my mentors, I would say both of them really, you know, um, gave that to, to us. Because I think they really both created laboratory environments where we all felt empowered to contribute and we all felt validated, you know. And, you know, I, I've asked my share of stupid questions, believe me, you know, many times, right? So, you know, and I, I um, and things that I haven't understood or, you know, just, you know, all kinds of, of things that happen. And, uh, you know, I think just, making sure that people feel like, you know, they're, they're validated and they're empowered in their work is super important. And that's probably the most important lesson I learned from my advisors. So let's, uh, 
move into your research a little bit. Um, starting off, let's uh, you know you've you focused mainly on RNA throughout your your research career. What is it about that? Uh, you know, it's sort of seen by most people sort of the understudy to DNA. <laughs> what right. is it about it that's uh, that that's fascinated you through the years? Well, I was, you know, let's just start with what you just said. You know, I, 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 I love the fact that RNA is, uh, you know, kind of the, the underappreciated, uh, you know, un, under, uh, uh, you know, people don't expect much of RNA, right? So it's kind of, it's kind of cool automatically in my book for that reason. But, um, you know, I think it, it, it comes down to, um, it goes back to my, my graduate work where my graduate advisor was, you know, he was very interested in this question of the origin of life. And his, his hypothesis was that it really all started with RNA. And, uh, and that, that wasn't his unique idea, of course. There are many others that have, have been thinking about this. But, you know, I think that it, it, it was something that we started to, you know, we would talk about this a lot in the lab, and not just my advisor, but, you know, other students that were in the lab. And, you know, we would, we would talk about, you know, how could you imagine uh, a replicating system, a cellular life form getting started? And increasingly, you know, as I was doing my graduate work, all the pieces were really pointing to RNA. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's kind of relevant to the current pandemic that we're in with coronavirus, actually, because, you know, coronavirus, many people may know that it's an RNA virus. And uh, that means that the RNA of this virus encodes all of the information needed to make more virus and to be very good at infecting, you know, human cells. And so, uh, you know, RNA is a, a clearly a very competent, very good genetic material. But what I was doing in my graduate work was studying something that had been unknown until not too long before, um, you know, I got started in grad school, which is that. RNA can also work as a um, as an enzyme, and that means that it can work by it can it can uh, accelerate the rates of chemical reactions. And that was a new discovery. That was actually what the work of Tom Check, uh, my my postdoc advisor, had had shown, and that's what he won the Nobel Prize for. And um, and it was a very interesting finding because it really, for the first time suggested how a genetic material, in this case RNA, could also potentially be able to replicate itself. It would have the chemical, you know, the chemical properties, chemical capabilities to make more copies of itself. And I found that just, you know, incredibly interesting and fun to think about. I still do. And, um, and so, you know, over the course of my career, I've, you know, I've always just found myself uh, drawn to this uh, kind of underdog, you know, RNA and uh, trying to understand what it does in modern biology. And then oh, I guess like always in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, how do I connect that back to what it might have done in very early evolution and how it could have given rise to all of this? Jennifer, let's talk about the discovery of CRISPR. I know it's a, it's a long story. Um, but can you walk us through it a little bit? Well, the, 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 you know, the story of CRISPR for me, it really does stem from my, my interest in RNA, actually, because, um, you know, I had, I had, um, I had, uh, well, let me just I'll tell you very briefly, little, little, uh, you know, 
story of my my career. So after I did my postdoctoral work, I took my first uh, faculty position at Yale University. And while I was there, I was, you know, running a research lab. We were looking at um, the molecular structures of RNA molecules and using a technique called X-ray crystallography. And that was incredibly fun, really exciting. It, you know, we, had, we solved a couple of the first um, uh, actual 3D structures of RNA so we could see their shapes and how they worked and how they could um, be um, involved in chemistry for the first time, which was incredibly exciting. And then I, um, I think I, you know, I was a few years into that, and uh, I had unexpectedly I had an opportunity to move to the University of California, Berkeley. And my initial reaction was, you know, gee, thanks for thinking of me, but I'm really happy at Yale. And uh, but you know, I went out to California and. You know, Berkeley's pretty nice. <laughs> and so one thing led to another, and I took the job, and I, I, moved, I did move my lab to Berkeley. And frankly, one of my motivations for doing that, beyond uh, you know Berkeley being a pretty cool place, is that I really wanted my research to expand in some new directions. And in particular, I was very excited about moving beyond looking at just the shapes of RNA molecules to really understanding how they work in cells and, um, and how they help to really control the way that genetic information is used in cells. And of course, viruses do this very effectively, right? That's sort of what a viral infection is, is that the virus takes over the cell and um, you know, uses the cell's uh, machinery to make more copies of itself. And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I moved to Berkeley in the early 2000s thinking that I would focus increasingly on how RNA was actually functioning in cells, whether through viral infections or just in, in uninfected cells, to really control the way that genetic material was, was deployed. And that led to a chance meeting with a fabulous scientist at Berkeley named Jillian Banfield, who is in a completely different field for me. She was studying, she's a geobiologist, so she studies bacteria that you find in, you know, um, you know, gold, gold mines and, you know, places like that. And, um, and so she was doing a lot of DNA sequencing of these bacteria and she had discovered something very interesting. That is that bacteria have a way of recording the genetic material of viruses that have infected them and storing that information over time in a place called the CRISPR. In the, in the bacterial uh, chromosome, in the bacterial DNA. And um, so she was very interested in this. And at the time, nobody knew what these sequences of DNA were doing. Well, why were they hanging out in these bacteria? And why were they being stored over time? But, um, you know, Jill being a, again, I would, I consider her a genius. You know, she's a very, very interesting, very creative scientist. She knew that there was something very cool and very interesting about these, and it wasn't something just to be ignored. And so she reached out to me because she literally Googled, you know, who at Berkeley works on, uh, you know, RNA, DNA, you know, uh, who's a biochemist? And that, you know, my name popped up. And so she called me and said, I think I've stumbled across a bacterial immune system that uses RNA. And I don't know how it works, but do you want to work on it? <laughs> and so anyway, we started meeting and, um, you know, one thing led to another and I started to, to work on it. And again, for me, 
you know, in my lab over the years, it's always about people, right? It's always about people. And I just got lucky. I got very lucky that right around the time when I was having those first few conversations with Jill Banfield and she was telling me about CRISPR and what might this be doing and how does it work, I met a fabulous uh, scientist, Blake Wiedenheft, who was from Montana. He, as, his, as a grad student, he had worked on bacteria. And he was probably one of the, I don't know, 10 people in the world at the time that had heard of CRISPR because he had come across it in his own work. And he, like Jill Banfield, wondered what the heck are these CRISPR sequences doing and are they really providing uh, an immune system to bacteria? And if they are, how does that work? So anyway, one thing led to another. He came to my lab and he started working on it. And eventually... Uh, that, that research was fun. And, you know, Blake was the kind of, uh, he was kind of a, you know, work hard, play hard kind of guy. So when I had new students come to the lab, they would, you know, I would ask them, uh, what would you like to work on in the lab? And they would say, I want to work with him, you know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever he's what working he, on, whatever I'll he's have doing. what he's having. <laughs> exactly. I'll have what he's having. Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, a little team began building up around CRISPR in the lab. And that eventually led to my uh, attending a meeting in Puerto Rico on, uh, on CRISPR. It was a, it was actually a meeting about microbiology, but they had one little afternoon session on CRISPR where I met Emmanuel Charpentier. And she was a fabulous, you know, again, just a wonderful microbiologist. She had come to CRISPR from a, her own unique angle. And uh, when we met at that meeting, we decided to work together on a very specific question that struck us both as very interesting, which was trying to understand why some bacteria were able to use a single type of CRISPR protein to protect themselves from viruses. And the, you know, specifically, how did that work? And the name of that protein is Cas9. And so Emmanuel and I uh, started working together over, you know, 6,000 miles. She was located in Sweden at the time. I was at Berkeley. And she had a student working in Vienna who was uh, the student in her lab that started working on this project with us. And I had a fabulous postdoc from the Czech Republic, Martin Yinek, who was the person in my lab that took on this partnership. And so, you know, I've worked on a lot of collaborations over the years. And uh, in my experience, you know, maybe 50% of them kind of work out. And most of them, you know, you get something out of it, but maybe it doesn't really click. But this was just kind of magical from the beginning somehow. Because first of all, Martin Yinek in my lab and Chris Chylinski, this guy in Vienna who was working with Emmanuel, they turned out by just happenstance, they had grown up, you know, just across the Polish border from each other. And they both spoke the same dialect of Polish. I mean, who could have figured it out? So when they started, you know, they hadn't met in person, but they started communicating over Skype in those days. And, um, you know, they realized this. And so they immediately had this really cool cultural connection. And, uh, and then the science just started to click, right? And so we quickly got, uh, you know, this system working. We had purified Cas9 protein. And we were doing experiments to figure out how it could find and destroy viral DNA, because that's really what it does. And uh, we figured out exactly how that worked. And, and it was just a, the coolest thing ever, right? It's, a, you know, it's literally a programmable protein that uses a little 
RNA molecule that provides the address label to go to a viral, you know, piece of viral DNA and cut it up. And so once we figured that out, uh, that that project, you know, was just it was just on a fast track because we realized, you know, I, I still, you know, this is like one of those moments in my life that I'll never forget, right? It's, you know, being in my office and having Martin Yinek showing me his data for how this Cas9 protein was working as a, you know, destroyer of viruses and realizing that we could take that chemical activity and use it for something very different because of all the work going on in not our lab, but many other labs that had shown that if you could cut DNA at a particular place in the cell, you know, DNA of a cell, that you could induce the cell to fix it, fix the break, and in the process, make a change to the DNA sequence. And that's a process called genome editing. And there were earlier technologies for doing this, and people were in the, you know, all of through biology, uh, field of biology, were very, very excited about the potential for this, but nobody had come up with a great way to do it, and it turned out nature had, right? It turns out these bacteria <laughs> had a wonderful way to do it, and they were using it for a different purpose, but we realized that we could just repurpose it as a technology, and so that really set us on the path of, you know, what we've been doing for the last now eight years of, you know, really thinking about how we're going to use you know, metadata to do all sorts of really important, um, you know, things in medicine and agriculture, but also to do it in an ethical and responsible way. So since that time, CRISPR has kind of taken the biological world by storm and people are using it all over. I, what are some, I mean, what are some of the applications that, or research uh, um, um, projects that you find most exciting that are using CRISPR? Well, on the research side, I love the fact that, you know, when you have a way to manipulate DNA in cells and do it at a precise place, you could, you, the experimenter can decide, you know, I'm going to go tickle that gene over there and see what happens, right? You can imagine that that just is an incredibly powerful tool for understanding fundamental biology. And so there's just, you know, extraordinary work that's been done. I mean, you know, people have done all sorts of things uh, with organisms that in the past were only possible to study by observation. Now you can manipulate them genetically. And so you can, you can inquire about the genetics of things like, you know, why are snail shells right-handed in nature and not left-handed? That's been a, one of the longest standing questions in <laughs> developmental biology. And now we know, we know there's a gene. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and CRISPR found the gene, right? It, it allowed, yeah. you know, it's, a, mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those crazy things. Um, I know another scientist who's working on a fascinating uh, project where she's trying to understand how bipedalism evolved. So why are we bipedal? We are bipedal organisms, but we evolved clearly from animals that are quadrupeds. And so how do we think about that, right? How, you know, what's the genetics there? Uh, it seems like a, you know, it might seem like an intractable kind of question, except that um, it's been known for a while that there are these um, rodents in, um, I think they're South Americans, that are, uh, are, are, uh, are bipedal, actually. So they, they really walk on, on their hind legs. And they're pretty closely related genetically to another type of rodent that is a quadruped. 
And so um, what this uh, scientist is doing is using CRISPR to figure out the differences genetically that allow this organism that this rodent that is bipedal to, you know, to walk on two legs. And what are the genes that are involved in that? I mean, that's the kind of thing that in the past, no way, right? You would never, mm -hmm. ever have, you just didn't have the tools to figure out the answer to a question like that. So, you know, for me, uh, you know, as a, as a scientist, as a researcher, I love that stuff, right? I mean, it's just awesome to see that kind of, of question and answer process enabled with technology. But I think in a very practical sense, you know, gene editing is clearly going to be really impactful in biomedicine. It's going to be really impactful in agriculture, and it's going to be really impactful in what I would call synthetic biology, you know, sort of being able to manipulate organisms to make, um, you know, chemicals and products that are desired in, in a technology sense. And all of those areas are things that, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited about in my own uh, work. You know, I would say that, you know, my own lab, we're, we're primarily focused on biomedical applications and really trying to, you know, make sure that, uh, the CRISPR technology is the best it can be, that we understand how it works. And um, we have a, you know, we, we st I started a, an institute at the University of California, Berkeley and UCSF uh, Medical School about five years ago called the Innovative Genomics Institute. And that institute is, you know, spearheading a couple of clinical trials. So we're moving ahead with sickle cell disease and with a rare immune disorder that affects, you know, just a very small number of people, not something that, you know, drug companies are going to go after because it's, you know, it's not going to be a moneymaker, but clearly for people affected with a disease like that, it's, you know, it, it's their life, right? And so we're very excited about the potential for CRISPR to be a cure for those kinds of diseases. And uh, I really, I'm really just, you know, wanting to ensure that the technology is safe, that it works well, and that it's used in, in a responsible way. And also, frankly, uh, that it's used equitably. You know, I think that one of the big topics that's been in the media over the last few years is really about the disconnect between incredible advances in science and technology, but then the price tag being such that almost nobody can afford those. Well, you know, I can tell you, I don't, I have no interest in developing things like that, right? I, that's not exciting to me. What is exciting is figuring out how do you take a powerful technology and develop in a way where it, where it is affordable, you know, where, where it is, it is widely accessible to people that need it. And that's a, you know, that's its own challenge, right? But, you know, that's, 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 I think, something that certainly being at a public university uh, here in California, I think is, you know, really part, it's kind of baked into our mission, really. And it's something that's really, really important to me personally. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about, on the one hand, pushing the technology, but always doing it with the thinking that, you know, this, we have to make this affordable. We have to make it accessible. Jennifer, you mentioned um, using CRISPR responsibly. Are there people using CRISPR today in ways that you would prefer not to see? Well, you know, I think I think a challenge in science that we see in general is that, um, you know, science is like any other human endeavor, right? I mean, you know, people are people are people, you know, and and uh, you know, um, you, if you have a powerful tool, there's a certain type of person that 
wants to use it for whatever, you know, anything, right? And anything that can be done should be done. And um, and I think that, you know, CRISPR is made no, no, no exception to that. And so what we've seen with CRISPR over the last few years is that there are, you know, a couple of, of things that have been done with CRISPR that are, are clearly, I think, you know, irresponsible and just frankly shouldn't be done. One of them, you know, probably the most, the one that got the most attention was CRISPR babies, right? And, you know, um, using CRISPR to change the genetics of human embryos, not for research, but for actual implantation and to create a pregnancy. And, uh, you know, and I think that that clearly is something that, you know, just at least right now shouldn't happen because the technology isn't ready and, you know, we're not ready, right? Society isn't ready for that. Um, and then the other, the other thing that, that I think other uh, type of applications that I think is, is uh, important to pay attention to for sure is something called gene drive, which is a way that scientists, some scientists are using CRISPR to introduce a genetic trait that can be spread very quickly through a population of organisms um, like mosquitoes, and uh, and and this could you know this could have incredible benefits because you could use it in a way that would, for example, prevent the spread of a, a mosquito-borne disease like Zika virus or dengue or malaria. Um, but it could also be an ecological disaster. You know, what if you used it to cause uh, certain types of organisms to go extinct? Um, and, uh, you know, or be incapable of reproduction and how would that affect the, you know, the ecosystem. So I think that, you know, for me, those are two areas where I think we have to be very vigilant about the way the CRISPR technology is being used. And, uh, you know, this is a, this is really the moment for the scientific community to stand up and say, you know, we, we, certain types of applications are just unacceptable. You mentioned that um, your lab has been focusing on coronavirus testing. How, how is that going and, and what's involved in that? Yeah, uh, you know, I think like many scientists, when, when it was clear that we were facing a global emergency with this pandemic uh, back in the early part of this year, many of us asked ourselves, you know, what, what could or should we be doing to use our own expertise in, in, in this time of a real need? And so one of the things that we've done at the Innovative Genomics Institute is we started a clinical testing lab. And um, that has turned out to be a very, uh, very interesting and I think very important endeavor on multiple levels. So first of all, we were doing it on a campus, which, uh, you know, my campus of the University of California, Berkeley, which is not a medical school. So for us to take clinical samples and, and report medical results, was something that you know we had to figure that out, and uh, it, it's been a it's been a very interesting path. But we did do it, and uh, we got it up and running in about three weeks. Amazingly, it took, it took a lot of you know it took going all the way up to the governor of California and uh, the president of the University of California system and uh, many many other people who helped you know get this to, to go. But um, but now we have this lab running, and uh, what we're doing is testing samples from people for the presence of the coronavirus and we're using a standard test it's not a not a CRISPR test yet we, we hope to hope to develop that at some point but um, right now we're using a, a standard test but uh, we also raised quite a bit of, of uh, donor support to this and because of that we've been able to offer this test for free to many people in uh, the East Bay area of uh, the Bay Area of California 
where, quite frankly, many of those folks don't have access to healthcare. They don't have access to testing. And a lot of our, our partner healthcare organizations service the, the unsheltered, the uninsured, uh, folks that are uh, first responders, uh, people that work in the uh, California energy sector that are keeping our, our power plants running, uh, police, firefighters, um, people in, working in nursing homes. And uh, it's been really interesting because we've certainly gotten to know a lot of people in our own community that we wouldn't have otherwise gotten to know. And, uh, you know, there's this wonderful, I mean, this is one of many, many stories I could tell you, but there was this morning, very early on, you know, we had just started this testing lab and we're starting to work with uh, an organization in East Oakland that works with, uh, goes out to homeless shelters, uh, homeless uh, encampments, actually, not even shelters, right? These are just, you know, tents, uh, tent camps, and uh, works with those folks to offer uh, healthcare guidance and, and services. And one of our volunteers from our testing lab took a whole uh, box of our test kits over to them and uh, asked them if they would like to submit samples for, for testing and then for follow-up if they were tested positive. And the woman receiving the box just hugged the donor, our, I mean, our, our volunteer, just hugged her and said, she said, this is amazing. She said, we thought no one cared about us here. I mean, it was, you know, it's like, even now, it just, I feel so emotional about it because it's just like, you know, it's, you realize that there are folks, right? I mean, just within a few miles of our lab who literally feel abandoned by their government and by this country. And uh, it's, it's heartbreaking, but, you know, it's really, really makes us every day. We have, a, so we have a testing lab meeting seven days a week, every day. We're on a hour long call with our testing team about, you know, how we're, running the test for the day or the week. And uh, every day we remind ourselves, this is why we do what we do, because these people really need us and they don't have anyone else. So it, it feels like really important work and you know, we're, we're proud to be doing it. Do you know how many people approximately you have tested since you started? Yeah, it's a few thousand uh, that we've tested so far. And uh, we're, at, we've actually, we're now in the process of ramping up to a, uh, an automated test. So we started off doing you know, a couple hundred tests a day and we now have uh, robots that do our tests for us, which is great. And uh, so we're, we're, now, we're now able to do about a thousand tests a day. And, and quite frankly, the bottleneck for us now is not the test, it's actually the sample intake. So, you know, figuring out how to get those thousand samples a day has turned out to be non-trivial. So we're almost out of time. And I, I'm, this, this is kind of a petty thing to end on after talking about something <laughs> really important. But um, your, your name comes up pretty repeatedly in you know, over the last few years among um possible recipients of a Nobel yourself. How does it feel to be talked about in that way? Well, you know, uh, Mark, I, I still, in my heart, think of myself as that, that, that young girl, you know, growing up in Hilo and, um, you know, thinking to myself, gosh, I wonder if I could be a biochemist someday. I still think of myself that way, right? So <laughs> I'm, honestly, I just, you know, I'm still, uh, I still 
have moments when I, you know, I look around at my colleagues and the people I get, I'm so lucky to work with every day. And I think, wow, I just, I'm so lucky. I just feel grateful. <laughs> and uh, for me, that's what it's about. You know, it, it really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's about doing work that I enjoy, that I feel where I feel like I'm making a contribution. Um, I, I think, you know, the opportunity to work with so many smart people and lots of people that are smarter than me is, is amazing. So I stay focused on that. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I leave those, the, the, you know, the, the, the prize decisions are, are beyond my pay grade, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up. We've been, uh, talking with Jennifer Doudna, class of 85, um, Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Patty. Great to be here. Thank you, Jennifer. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.